Uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to be in verses 17 through 20. 17 through 20 today. I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. But let me pray before we, before we look at it. Lord, thank you for today. God, um, <laughs> I just pray for help this morning. This text is, is difficult, Lord, and I just pray for your help that I can, I can teach it well and that we can all, be, um, can all be edified by the power of your Spirit through this text. We know that we can, and I just pray for my own mind to be clear and concise. And Lord, I pray that as we look at somewhat of, of a... Um, of an almost an academic feel as we talk about the law and how that relates to <clears throat> Christ and the gospel. Lord, I pray that it would be more than just a, uh, an academic understanding of how the law relates, but Lord, that you would use this to, to drive home our need for, for Christ and the cross and the gospel. So Lord, please, please Lord, come and, and help this morning. I thank you, God, and I love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So anyway, um, I uh, that was strange. It's, I blame Apple. Everything's I something, so that's how to say. All right, so um, my goal this morning is as we're preaching through, or as I'm going through Matthew five seventeen through 20, is not to confuse you and not to confuse me, because it's it's... It's difficult. If I get confused, I'm just going to tell a story about Aiden or something. So um, it's, it's, it is very, very interesting, um, this text. And it can be confusing. So let me, let me go ahead and read it and give you an idea of what's going on so that we can better understand what's, what's happening. Now, remember, we've just gone through the Beatitudes. And so Christ is preaching his first of five kind of sermon discourses throughout the book of Matthew. This is the first. He just got through doing some healings and the, the disciples or the people that had been following him come and they sit down and he teaches um, what, what is the very, the very introduction of his sermon. We're getting now, and, and as we get to 17, this becomes the body. And I'm going to show you why I say that in just a second. But he just introed his sermon with the gospel, with the Beatitudes. And as he unpacked what is the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we're all um, sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus died for us and that as he gives us his righteousness, we become those that are counted as holy, as righteous. And then we want to go and be peacemakers or be the people that proclaim this gospel to other people, will be persecuted. And then he talked about salt and light and how that looks and how that looks in our life that we are now the proclaimers or what living as a Christian looks like in, in the life of, our, of, of us. And he, he unpacks that in the introduction. And now verse 17 kind of transitions um, in, this, in this Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, chapters 5 through 7. And he's beginning the body of his sermon. Remember in, in, in elementary school when you learn to write a paper, you write your introduction and then you write the body and then you write your conclusion. Jesus is starting now the body of, of, of the sermon. Um, so let's read this and I'm going to explain to you why. That's going on. So he's just introduced it with the gospel. <clears throat> and then he goes to 17. Remember, his audience is a Jewish audience. And so it's very important. All right, here we go. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one 
of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so (laughs) there's a lot of things I want you to see here. First, let's go ahead and, and let me explain to you why we've entered the body. Look at 5.17, and you'll see the little um, words, law and prophets. Now, Matthew likes to do, um, the theological word is inclusio, and we just call it bookends. Um, and basically, that just helps us see that he's, he's going to do bookends for us to let us see. He did that in the Beatitudes. In 5.3, we can say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he did it in 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's the little bookends telling us, here are the bookends of the introduction of the Beatitudes. And then now he's doing it with the words law and prophets in 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. So he says that in 5.17. And then he go over, go over with me to 7.12 where the golden rule is. In 7.12 it says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is, there it is, the law and the prophets. And so those two little bookends of 5.17 are giving us the body. And then after 7.12, 7.13 and following, the rest of... The rest of chapter 7, 7.13 and following, will be his conclusion. So now we've entered what is the body of the sermon. Um, now, I want to give you an understanding of the rest of chapter 5 and how this, this particular text, 7-20, through 20, relates to the rest of chapter 5. All right, So here's what's going on here. Um, in 7-20, through 20, Jesus is telling us the gospel of the kingdom and how it relates to law. This is, this is Christ and the law. Now what he's going to do after that in 21 through 48 in chapter 5, he's going to take Christ and the law and he's going to give us six antitheses. And that just kind of means, you know, the opposites of things and, and how that looks. They're going to contrast in, in, in 521 through 548, he's going to in six different ways contrast a proper and false interpretation and application of the Old Testament law. And he's going to do that with these six titles which you probably have in your Bible, which are anger, lust, and divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love your enemies. So the goal here over the next three weeks, including today, is what we're going to do, and Lord willing, you know, this happens the way I'm planning it, is today we're going to talk about Christ and the law. And we're just going to look at 17 through 20 and try to understand how Christ relates to the law. And once we have that firm understanding for the following two weeks, we're going to look at those six antitheses in the rest of chapter 5 and how um, we can contrast a proper understanding of the law versus a false understanding because Jesus is going to do that for us. So next week, we're going to look at the first three, anger, lust, and divorce. And then the following week, we're going to look at oaths, retaliation, and love your enemies. Lord willing, if, if I, you know, you know me, so it might be three weeks. But anyway, that's, that's the way it's going to look for us. But now, today, what we need to do is get a good understanding of 17 through 20 so that we can, if we get a good understanding of 17 through 20 and what Christ and the law means and what his understanding of the law is, then we look at the next two weeks. Um, we need to understand how Christ looks at the law to be able to understand 21 through 48 in chapter 5, because 21 through 48 in chapter 5 is going to look over to Exodus and it's going to have lots of um, shades of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And he's going to start unpacking the Ten Commandments for us in a little bit different way, which isn't just external, 
but it's going to be driving down deep into the internal realities, the motives of our heart, and why we do the things we do. It's not just an external keeping of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is going to drive further down in into the internal, um, the internal motives of our heart. So, before we do that, um, what I want to do is talk about the law um, and how we're supposed to understand the law now. Because today, um, if you spend very much time in the church or any time in any kind of Christian church setting, we're gonna, we're gonna, when people talk about the law, they're going to say, all right, the law has been fulfilled for us in Christ. And so since the law has been fulfilled for us in the Christ, we don't have to obey the law anymore. We just need to have, we can go the law route. If we go the law route, then we can be you know, justified before God. But then we know that none of us will ever be able to go the law route because we're all completely sinful, utterly sinful. We'll never be able to keep the law. So if we can't do that, then we have faith in Christ. If we put our faith in the gospel, we put our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, then we can be. So it's like, if you can't accomplish plan A, keeping the law, well, you've always got plan B, you know, Jesus and the cross. And that's the wrong way to think about it because it's always been Jesus and the cross is plan A. That's the way that salvation is going to happen for us. And so if that's the case, then what's the, what's the reason for the law and what's our approach to the law and how should we view the law? How should we even think of the law? And a lot of times, um, in the Old Testament, as, they, as you look through the Pharisees and scribes and those who grew up in, in what would be the Jewish tradition, their idea of the law is, I love the law, I want to keep the law, and I'm going to have a big, huge external keeping of the law. And if I do that, I have a right standing with God. And in the New Testament, and in the New Testament, you know, church age, or whatever you want to call it, not dispensationals. Anyway, so um, as, we're, as we're going into this idea, we start thinking, all right, well, since I don't have to keep the law, it's all the gospel, and so I don't even need to think about the law. I'm filled with the Spirit, I walk with the Spirit, the Spirit fills me, and so observance of law is not something i got to worry about. As a matter of fact, you know, law, whatever. Um, and so let's look at Psalm 119, because here's, here's, the, here's the idea I want you to see. In the Old Testament, I want you to see the way that these Old Testament saints approached the law. Like, what was their attitude towards the law and is that reflective of the way our attitude should be look at look at we're just going to read some of these verses in psalm 119 i don't know how far i'm going i, I plan on 20 but we don't see if I, we might not get that far you'll probably get the idea look what he's just notice the attitude that this old testament saint has towards the law psalm 119 i just invite you by the way don't do it during my sermon but i invite you to spend a lot of time in psalm 119 this week and just observe the love of the law that this guy has. I mean, he loves the law. Look what he says. Blessed are those whose way is blameless and walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies and seek him with their whole heart, but also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules and I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. 
in the way of your testimonies I delight as much in all the riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed. Listen to this verse. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules all the time. You're like, wait a second. I thought our soul's supposed to be consumed with a longing and love for Jesus. And he's saying, I just love your rules. Give me all your rules, God. And so we get over here to Matthew 5 and... As he starts talking about the law and how it relates to us, are we supposed to have this attitude? Are we supposed to have this attitude towards the law like this guy? Now, here's the thing. 517. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why is Jesus saying, do not think this? Because every one of them are naturally, especially this Jewish audience, are immediately are thinking, has he just thrown out the law and the prophets completely? All right, notice how he's preached the sermon so far. Remember, he's preaching to Jews primarily here. Matthew is talking, and all they've known is the law and prophets. All they've known is the Old Testament scriptures where laws have been given. Yes, they've been explained faith, but they didn't have a good understanding of that. And so the law, 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 keep the rules, etc. And all Jesus has done in this sermon so far is given them the gospel, in the Beatitudes, and then talked about how they're supposed to be salt and light, how they're supposed to be Christians in the earth. He hasn't even mentioned so far yet the law of the prophets. And he knows that these, these people who are Jewish are thinking, is he ever going to talk about the law? I mean, seriously, that's what we know. Why has he not mentioned it yet? So 5.17, and what begins the body, he's going to address what he knows that they're thinking. Do not think that I have come... To abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Alright, so now we're going to have to talk about what that means. So there's four things I want you to see. Each one of the verses is going to contain one of those things. It's pretty straightforward. You can actually even guess the wording of it, I'm sure. But the first thing is this. Jesus fulfills the law. The first note that we want to talk about today from the text is that Jesus fulfills the law, not abolishes it. So... Jesus is not coming saying, um, all those rules, yeah, I just throw them out of the window now. Um, all you need to do now is just believe in the gospel. He's saying, yes, you need to believe in the gospel, but I've not come to abolish or throw out the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. So let's talk about what that means here. What does it mean to say he's coming to fulfill the gospel? All right, so Jesus is making a huge point that he's not throwing out the teachings of the Old Testament Instead, he wants to uphold the authority of the Old Testament. He's not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Instead, he came to fulfill the teachings. So here's what we can think about when we start thinking about Jesus fulfilling this. First, he is fulfilling the doctrine or the teaching of the Old Testament. Meaning this, when he taught on the law, when Jesus is going to teach in, in 521 through 48, when he starts teaching on the law... Um, he is not talking about how to just deal with externals. Rather, he's going to start talking about the heart and how to deal with internals. So he is fulfilling the law in that he's going to open up this reality of, I'm not just talking about externals, I'm talking about ex internals. Um, I want you to understand more than just 
I want you to look right on the outside. Also, he's fulfilling the law by his lifestyle. Um, We know that Jesus, for him, the law was not a burden at all. Doing the will of God, as a matter of fact, in John says that doing the will of law was his food. So he is fulfilling the law because his actions, his intentions were always perfect. Everything he did and every thought and motive he had towards doing it were always perfect. The law was not burdensome to him. So he fulfilled the law because he kept it perfectly for us on our behalf. He also fulfills the law in that um, his death was, he, he died for us by keeping the law for us. And what I mean is this, by, by showing that he is not breaking the law of God, um, he has now, if we break the law of, the God, uh, law of God, it is an eternal, everlasting, eternal offense towards God. Because God is infinite in his holiness. So if God is infinite in his holiness, even though, uh, here's what I'm trying to say. Here's a question that a lot of people have. Okay, why is it that um, if we are finite and we break one law, how come God has to punish us eternally for that one law? Why can't he just punish for some temporal set of time? and And after that time period, then everything's okay. Why is it that if we break a law, our punishment has to be eternal? Because God is eternal. So if we break a law of God, His infinite, His holiness is infinite. Therefore, any offense to it has to be punished equally. It has to be punished eternally. So Jesus is coming and keeping the law perfectly by dying for us. And when He dies, it's not unloving for God to, but it's loving and just for Him to punish us eternally for breaking his law. But here's the good news. Here's the good news in that. We, if we don't put faith in Jesus, we will be eternally punished. But if we do put our faith in Christ, he puts all of his wrath on his son at the cross for us. And then all of our sin is forgiven. Not only is all of our sin forgiven, but more than that, all of his righteousness is then imputed to us. And so now Jesus is fulfilling the law for us because his death is um, for us and for our behalf. So we receive forgiveness. So that's another way in which he fulfilled it. So Martin, uh, I'm sorry, not Martin. um, James Boyce says this, Jesus fulfilling the law primarily means that he came to die. And in dying, he is canceling the claims of the law against all of us who would receive receive him as savior. So, The law came to kill us. The law came in order to show us that we were sinful and show us that we were dead spiritually and in need of a Savior. And when Jesus fulfills the law, now we can can receive him as Savior and be given life. Um, How much do I want to give here? Jesus, all right, let me say it to you this way. Jesus' gospel of the kingdom does not replace the Old Testament, but rather it fulfills it as Jesus' life and ministry, coupled with his interpretation, it completes... Because what he's doing in, in 21 through 48 is interpreting for us the law. He's interpreting. He's given us a complete understanding and clarifying what the law was actually for. And he's clarifying its intent and its meaning of the entire Old Testament law. So that's what Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is coming. Now remember, I pointed to you this a few weeks in a row now. Remember 423. 
Remember 4.23, it says that Jesus went and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So his message is the gospel of the kingdom. Um, he tells us that also in 5.3 and in 5.10, that he's preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's not preaching observing law. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so for Jews, they're going to think automatically that it's law. It's law. It's law. And he's going to say in the next following verses, 21 through 48, that this fulfill language that he's using, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it, is this. It's important because as we look at these next six things in 21 through 48, we don't need to think that Jesus is trying to annul the law, but rather, based on his established authority as the Messiah, he's interpreting the right understanding of the law for us, and he's going to teach it to us. He's claiming authority based on himself being the Messiah. All right, so now that y'all are thoroughly confused, um, let's just go ahead. And I mean, I'm trying not to confuse myself. This, this is what, um, let me just read this to you. D.A. Carson really got me excited the re- at the beginning of this week. He said, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. So I was really blessed at the beginning of the week whenever I came to that um, <laughs> to be able to come here and try to teach this. So I'm trying not to confuse myself as I'm talking to y'all. All right, so anyway. Um, So that's the first thing, is that we need to understand that Jesus came not to abolish the law. He didn't come to throw it out. He came to fulfill it. And he does fulfill the law for us. Now, as he fulfills it, we have to start asking ourselves, so what is our relationship to the law now? What is our attitude towards the law now as well? All right, so let's look at 18. For truly, I say to you, and whenever Jesus uses this, for truly, I say to you, this is a signal um, only Jesus does this, and this is a signal that he's saying this statement that's about to be said is very, very important. So anytime you see Jesus say, truly I say to you, this is, this is a signal to look out. This is going to be really important. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished, those two things are just saying the same thing in that verse. And he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. So he's, he's fast forwarding your mind to the end of the age. He's talking about the eschaton, the, the last days. Until that happens, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. This iota and dot, these are the smallest um, markings in the Hebrew text. And so he's saying not the smallest markings, not the, the littlest markings in the Hebrew text, which is what the law was written in, will pass away. Nothing will pass away from the law. So that's number two. The second note is this. The law will not pass away until all is accomplished. So what Jesus is wanting to do here in this verse is he's wanting to uphold in front of us the law's authority. The law does have some authority. And he's wanting to uphold it in front of us and help us see that the law is not going to pass away until everything is accomplished. Jesus is also showing us his high view of the Old Testament scriptures. He has a high view of the Old Testament scriptures and he's wanting us to see that he has a high view of the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus is confirming the high or the authority of the Old Testament and he's saying that this law will remain until the new heavens and the, and, and the new earth. All must be accomplished first. So let's talk about that. Until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. What does that mean? What, what, what is all being accomplished? All right, so let's put our place 
Let's put ourselves in the first century and think about where we are. We're at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And he's saying until all is accomplished, this won't pass away. He's at the very beginning of his ministry. He hasn't necessarily gotten a whole lot of things going yet. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't been resurrected. People haven't gotten crazy saved like in the book of Acts. We haven't gotten to 2011 where church is all over. So all these things must happen. So this is what he's talking about that must happen. He must go and die on the cross. He must um, die for sins. He must be resurrected. All of these things must happen. The church needs to be formed. People will be, start getting saved in Acts. We will be in this time where people are getting saved and then we'll go, and I'm going to give a little bit of my eschatology away. I'm one of those crazy post-tribbers. We'll go through the tribulation and then at the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, that's when the second coming will come. All right? All that must be accomplished. And in that t- entire time period, that entire time period, there will never be a time where the law is not valid. The law will be upheld during that entire time period, which means we're in that. We are in that. So, our attitude towards the law needs to be like the writer of Psalm 119. It's not to be, yeah, whatever, the rules, ceremonial, moral, all that kind of stuff. Jesus kept all that for me. I'm filled with the Spirit. I can just do whatever I want now. I got the Spirit in me and I can just... I trust the Spirit to convict me and let me walk. Yes, I mean, all that is absolutely true. I don't want to minimize the the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. God Himself in your life, transforming you into the image of Christ and helping you walk more by the power of the Spirit, therefore naturally keeping the law. However, um, we still have to have an attitude towards the law like the writer of Psalm 119 we love the law because Jesus in, in this verse 18 is telling us the law will not pass away. He is still upholding the authority of the law. Now, the role of the law is interesting um, because the law, like I said, does come to us. And when it comes to us, it shows us that we're sinners. Let me just read a verse to you. Um, this is Romans 7, 7, Romans 7, 7. I wasn't planning on doing this, but let's just go to Romans 7, 7. Let me let you see this. Romans 7, 7 says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Here it is right here. Listen to this. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So, the reason why you know that you're a sinner is because God gave you the law. Like, you need the law to know that. You wouldn't have known that covetousness. He's going to go into the example of covetousness right here. Paul's going to say that. Um... I would have not have known what to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, when the law came, sin came alive and I died. So there it is. Like the the law is showing you that you are sinful and because you're sinful, you die spiritually. And whenever you die spiritually, you are made aware of the fact that now you are spiritually dead. So the law is important. We need to know the law. And so you you see um, some evangelistic methods like Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort whenever they walk around in Europe and they just take the law. Have Have you ever sinned? Have you ever lied before? So by your own confession, you're a lying, sinful, sexual immorality. You know, that guy. And then they get mad and they beat him with the Bible. Like, um, or not the Bible, I guess with their hands, whatever. So you should Google that. It's really funny. Um, so anyway, 
<clears throat> you come to my country and insult me. That's what God says. Anyway, so like the law has a re- has a purpose, and so in that evangelistic strategy, um, which I wouldn't recommend because people get pretty ticked um, calling them you know a liar and a, whatever. So um, the law, but the Bible says that like you need you need the law to show people that they're sinful. There's a way to do it, of course. That's a little more winsome. But the law shows us that we're sinful. And when it shows us that we're sinful and that we're dead spiritually, then we can talk about Christ and the gospel and how the gospel can make us alive spiritually if you go to Ephesians 2. And then they can see their their absolute need for the gospel. So the second note that I want you to see um, is that the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. Jesus is warning us to see that the authority of the law is to be upheld and that there is reason for the law. All right, now, let me point this out again. I've shown it to you already. I want to point it to you again. Um, 4.23, he says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And 5.3, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. I want you to see how repetitious Matthew is with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, and the gospel of the kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven. All right, in 5.3, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. In 5.10, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Now, in these next verses, 19 and 20, I want you to see um, he's going to say kingdom of heaven three times. He's going to say it. Therefore, whoever relaxes when least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then, but whoever does these and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, here it is again, enter the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew is very interested in making sure that you understand that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Namely, as 423 says, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So he wants you to understand the gospel of the kingdom. And I just, I mean, I recommend reading the the Beatitudes to know what the gospel of the kingdom is. Um, But let's look at 19. Therefore, and this is, this is interesting. 19 is crazy confusing. Like, this is interesting, interesting language. Um, because just as we read it, I want you to notice, there seems to be, and this is what the commentators were saying, and it was just kind of like, what does that mean? And I don't know, because we're not in heaven. There seems to be that in heaven, there's a ranking in heaven. Like, I don't know what it means. We're not there. But as you read this, um, the commentators were all saying this, this is what it seems to be pointing to, that there is a ranking in heaven. Some are greater and some are less um, in heaven. Look what it says. Therefore, <coughs> excuse me, whoever relaxes one of the least of one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do so will be called. There it is least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So. There's, there's two lines being drawn. If you relax on it, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If you don't relax on it, but you do them and teach them, then you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we had to choose between the two, obviously every one of us would choose that we want to be great in the kingdom. No one wants to be, just throw me in with the dogs, whatever. Like we all want to be up high in the kingdom of heaven, not out of prideful, self, selfish motivation, but out of a deep love for Jesus We want to honor him with our life and we want to live a life of worship. Therefore, we want to teach and do what he's saying. And therefore, we will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Not that we'll be greater than Jesus. So don't mishear that. So if we want to we want to try to examine this verse, obviously, it's the second one that makes more sense, which leads me to my third note. Here's the third note. Doers and teachers of the law will be God will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's the way that's the route we want to go. There seems to be a sense in which there's a ranking of heaven, and I, I'm not really going to go down the road because I don't understand what it means. 
But what we can take from that is this. 19 is telling us, don't relax on the least of the commandments. But instead, be a doer and teacher. Be a doer and a teacher. If there's, a, if there's an application or a takeaway here for this third note is this. Don't relax on the least of the commandments. Instead, you and I both should be the kind of people who are doers and teachers of these commandments. The doers and the teachers of these commandments. We, the overall message here in 19 is this. In the kingdom of heaven, um, our ranking, whatever that means, is dependent upon the level of, be- of obedience we have to Jesus' commandments in this, in this lifetime. Now, if your gospel versus law alarm sounding off right now, I, mine is too. So let's just calm down for a second and say, what about the gospel versus law? You have a wrong understanding of the gospel versus law. Um, I am not saying that... Um, so let's, let's just talk what we, what we mean about relaxing and in what sense I'm talking about. I'm not saying this, that salvifically, in, in other words, I'm not saying that in order to be saved, you have to keep law. I'm not saying that, okay? I'm saying in order, evidentially, in order to give evidence that you are saved, then you will want to be the kind of person that is a doer and teacher of the law. So your justification, your right standing with God, I am not saying this, I'm not saying that your right standing with God is dependent upon your ability to do and teach law. Okay? I'm not saying that. I'm saying, we know that that's because of our faith in Christ alone. But, in a sense, that we are giving evidence of the fact that we are regenerate, that we are justified, then we will be the kind of people who do and teach the law. That's why, that's why our attitude should be like the guy from Psalm 119. So, Sinclair Ferguson, talking about this verse, he says this. Here's the way he kind of explains it to us. Our attitude toward the law, to the law of God is an index or a measure. Our attitude to the law of God is an index of our attitude to God himself. God gave the law. And so our attitude towards the law is reflective of our attitude towards God. So this verse here is not, is not telling us to take a light attitude toward the God. And it's, it's telling us that we should never teach someone to do so. Um, the law is not the basis by, w- by which we're saved. It's not the way that we merit salvation. Not through keeping the law. But it does provide for us a test to distinguish uh, between those who belong to the kingdom and those who are outside of the kingdom. And here's, here's the whole point. What I mean this is this. Don't miss. This is my point of number three. Those who are born, born again, those who are born again, joyfully obey the law. It's just that simple. Those who are born again, joyfully obey the law. Not because it's earning your salvation, but because it's giving evidence of it. And it's also also showing a measure or an index by which you feel deep love affections for Jesus. That's what it's showing. There are there are times in which maybe we don't have an understanding of all the things. Here's my example. I'm, I am going to go to a story of Aiden. Um, the other day, 
the other day, we were in Chick-fil-A, and um, Aiden, I mean, he's just got a sweet tooth. He loves, he loves sweets. And so we had, we had done our whole Chick-fil-A night, Monday night, kids night, kids eat free. So we go there, and um, we, we finish up, and we're, we're about to go out to the car. And we've got four children, and so, you know, anywhere, going anywhere is just, it's a work, it's an act of Congress. It's, it's just really just a mess. It's, it is, a, it, we got them all? Where are they? You know, oh, where's Aiden? Like, it's like, kind of like that all the time. So anyway, we are, we are, um, we, we were sure we have them all. And so we're walking out of the door and the, there's, there's Christy and I and three kids and we're looking around and where's Aiden? And here comes Aiden just darting past us out of the door. And so I grab him and in his hand, he's got a Chick-fil-A brownie. Now, if you go to Chick-fil-A, um, you go up to the cash register, you see the display of brownies there. And so Aiden just figured, hey, that's free stuff. And so um, he kept asking for it, and I told him he couldn't have it. You know. Anyway, so we, we're leaving, and he just he knows we're not watching him. Um, we're trying. Anyway, so he goes over to the he goes over to the register, and he takes it, and he's just darting out of the door. He's looking at me. He's darting out of the door, and I catch him, and I see that he has the brownie, and I'm like, Aiden, what are you doing with the brownie? I want the brownie, and buddy, we we didn't pay for it. We can't keep the brownie. We got to take it back. So he comes over. He's only three, and so we, we put it back. You know, he's sad. He wants the brownie. We, we go ahead and we go. I didn't buy it. I know I'm horrible. So. Um, my point is this, he's three and he didn't have an understanding that you just can't steal brownies from Chick-fil-A, all right? Um, so my point is this, as, as we approach the law, and I'm saying that keeping the law shows that we have a deep love affection for Jesus, there are going to be some things that um, we are ignorant of or they kind of take us off guard or like, I didn't realize this was the law or if I knew that was the law, my intentions were actually still to... To, to honor God, but I didn't. There's going to be times where we're going to be kind of like the three-year-old when it comes to law. So whenever we don't uphold the law all the time, it doesn't always mean, well, you're not a Christian then. You didn't uphold the law right there. Because Fudd said, if, if you want to show that or give evidence that you're a Christian, you're going to always uphold the law. You're going to be the doers and the teachers. Now you're just going to be like, I'm going to be the least in the heavens now. I'm going to be the worst. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying there is times and there will be instances as you're growing in your faith that you don't have a, a firm, deep, you know, holistic understanding of the law. But don't beat yourself up there. Instead, return to the Scriptures and spend your days investing in the Word, getting to know the Christ of the Scriptures. He's on every page. It's not a law book. It's a book about Jesus. And as you know about Jesus... You will know his rules, you will know his laws, you will know his statutes, and then you will know how to walk with him. So that's the third thing. The third thing is that we should be doers and teachers of the law, and if we do that, we'll be called great. And that's our attitude, that's our bend towards the law. All right, verse 20. Um, and this is crazy. I'm just going to tell you, this verse is crazy. Remember the context. Remember, he's speaking to people who are Jewish. Know that they have a deep understanding of the Pharisees. Um, and there, there might even be some Pharisees and scribes there. And listen to what he says. They all know, every person in this, in this crowd knows, if there's anybody, if there is anybody that is super religious, like really, really righteous, it's the Pharisees. There's no question about that. Everybody in the crowd is thinking that. And look what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine being someone in the crowd hearing that? Can you just, what did the disciples do when they heard that? Well, that's not very good news, Jesus. 
<laughs> that doesn't sound so good. If there's anybody that's righteous, it's got to be the scribes and Pharisees. As a matter of fact, look how he concludes this, this chapter 5. Look how he concludes in 48 the teaching of the six antitheses. Look at what he says in 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's, I mean, that's, we're all out. Every one of us. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so here's the fourth note. Here's the fourth note. It's just straight out of the, straight out of the text. Our righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees. Perfection is required. So... What does that mean? And for those that are believers in Jesus, we are going to rehearse some really good news right now. All right? Let me read to you, let me read to you from a guy named Paul in Philippians chapter 3 what um, this righteousness of the Pharisees looked like so that we understand what Jesus is saying. This is Philippians chapter 3. I'm in the middle of four and I'm going to go to six. The middle of four into six. This is what the righteousness of the Pharisees looked like. There's a guy named Paul that was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. And he outlines um, his life as a Pharisee and his righteousness, righteousness that he had attained as a Pharisee. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, it's got to exceed that. Or some versions will say, surpass that. It says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is what Paul says. I was, the Old Testament had these in their law. You had, to, you had to do these things. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. That means there were all these laws. And so what I did is not only did I keep those laws, but there were extra laws just to make sure I didn't break those laws. And so I kept those laws as well. I was a Pharisee. Like I was, I was rule keeper. And then he says this. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I was so excited about being a Pharisee that anybody that opposed what I believed as a Pharisee, I just killed them. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was righteous under the law. I kept every single point of it. That's what Paul says. And and Jesus is telling us here. I mean, all these people that are hearing knew that that's what the Pharisees attained and tried to strive for. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter it with this little phrase, this perfect phrase there, the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? Um, Philippians 3 is talking about an external, an external keeping of the law. And if we're going to match ourselves externally to the Pharisees, none of us are going to come close. None of us. You will never keep the rules and the laws like they did. I will never keep the rules and the laws like they did. They are far more externally righteous than us. They know the scriptures better than we do, and they keep the rules better than we do. So we're not talking about an external understanding of keeping the law. I mean, Jesus was pretty, pretty harsh to him later on in Matthew. So what he is referring to then is an internal an internal righteousness that must exceed the Pharisees because they had no internal righteousness. We cannot produce this internal righteousness ourselves. 
We cannot produce it. There is nothing inside of you that will ever keep the internal righteousness requirements of the law that is required of you. Let me read a text to you. Um, This righteousness must come from an external source. This is Romans 3. This is Romans 3. Listen to this. I'm at verse 21. Romans 3, 21. I'm going to read 21 and 22. Listen to this. This is in regard to the fact that we cannot externally get this righteousness that it must or we cannot externally keep it that we can't we can't attain to this righteousness because of our law keeping that it must come from an outside source to us this righteousness and all we're doing in number four is rehearsing the sweetness and the beauty of the gospel of jesus christ look at 321 it says but now the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law you can't keep the law An alien righteousness or a righteousness from outside the law has now been manifest. And his name's Jesus. This is what it says. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law and the prophets are all, all that this is saying in the teachings of 517 is the law and prophets are pointing to Jesus. They're bearing witness to Jesus. They're wanting to tell you about a man named Jesus. And that's why he says the law and the prophets They're talking about me. I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are bearing witness to me. me. Verse 22 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we can't produce this righteousness required by law keeping. However, this righteousness can be imputed. That's the theological language. Given into you. Be counted towards your account. Through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, right standing, righteousness, perfection that is required, as as Matthew 5, 48 says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This perfection is therefore now imputed or declared of you because of your faith in Jesus and His work on the cross. You are now keeping the the spirit of verse 20. Your righteousness now exceeding that of the Pharisees, not because you did it, but because Jesus has implanted his righteousness inside of you. That is really, really good news and really, really freeing because we know, all of us, we know how sinful we are in light of the law. Romans 7, 7 tells us when the law comes, we die. And so we have to have this great news of the righteousness of God being given to us. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Pharisaic righteousness is just skin deep. Christian righteousness is to be real. So let's look at Paul's reaction. He just told us in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, he just told us how he kept the law and how it was perfect and how he had what would be known as an external righteousness. What I want you to see here in 7 and following is what his opinion of that external righteousness that he kept, that it's way better than we could ever do. Like if there ever was a person that could say, I kept the external righteousness that makes me look really righteous in the eyes of man, it's Paul. Look what he says about that. It's pretty strong language, by the way. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain, 
in regard to law keeping, whatever gain I counted, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, all that stuff he just talked about in four through six, all of that external righteousness. He said, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Talking about what he, this all things he's talking about is this external righteousness he thought he had earned by being a Pharisee and all these kinds of things. He says, those things that people think are great, I count them as rubbish, as dung, as skubala, the Greek word. I mean, he can't get more graphic here. He's saying, I count that as rubbish or dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, come, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, the fourth note here is this. Our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Righteousness, perfection is required. And the thing that we're getting from the whole of Scripture and what Jesus is wanting us to see, that's why He gave us the Beatitudes in the beginning, is this. It's found in the Gospel. It's not found in your external law-keeping. You are not more righteous because you didn't sin sexually with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're righteous because you have faith in Jesus. You're not more righteous because you shared the gospel with eight people last week and somebody else didn't. Those are good things. Give, those things give evidence to your belief in Jesus. But law-keeping, no matter what, does not earn you righteousness. Um, a guy named Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, says this all the time and it's just so good. Jesus is just as much in love with you right now as he is when you're 75 and you're more sanctified and you're more holy. He's never going to be more in love with you than he is right now if you are a child of his, if you put your faith in Jesus. So while we always strive to love the law, we always strive to be doers and teachers of the law that give evidence, our right standing is not based on that. We do it out of, out of motivation of love. It's always motivated by love of Jesus that we keep it. And so as we turn into these six antitheses next week, Jesus is not driving at external keeping of the law. He's driving into the inward intent and motivation of your heart. And we're going to see that over the course of chapter 5. So, obedience to the law is to be emphasized. Obedience to the law is to be emphasized. I mean, the very last thing he says to us in Matthew 28, the very last thing he says to us before he goes away, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't say convert them all. He says more than that. He says, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. So obedience to the law is, is, is in the text. We know that we're supposed to obey. We know that we're supposed to observe these commandments. But they're not in order to be counted righteous. That's because of the gospel. 
So I'm, I'm praying that in verses 17 through 20 and, and Christ in relation to the law, I haven't confused you thoroughly. But I'm praying that you understand how important the law is in our life and that we should have an attitude of love and deep respect for the law and a desire to be obedient to the law. But it is because whenever we keep it, we're showing how much we love Christ, not earning a relationship with Jesus. So as we go into our... Um, as we go into our time of response, I want to ask you this. Honestly, look at your life, okay? Let's just take a few minutes here where you're being honest with yourself. And you're looking over the past day. You're looking over the past week. You're looking over the past month. And you're, you're looking at yourself and you're saying, where in my life am I trying to keep law in order that Jesus is going to be happy with me? Where is it that I am following rules so that Jesus is going to look at me and say, Oh, thanks for keeping those rules. Where do you think in your life right now you need to repent of trying to law keep in order to have the right affections of God rather than just believing in the gospel that all of your right standing and your love, on God, love from God is based on that? Just think over it. We all have these pharisaical tendencies to think that I have to do this in order for Jesus to be happy with me. And he's happy with you because he died for you and because you put your faith in him. I'm not saying don't keep those things. I'm not saying don't keep the conduct of observance of the law going forward. I'm saying erase the mindset that says I have to do this in order to be right with Jesus. And as you think on that, and as you pray on that, and as you confess on that, as you're confessing where you're prideful, or you're confessing where um, you think that this is because of your right staying with Jesus, is because of your obedience to the law, as you're confessing that, just stand and worship Christ because of the gospel. Stand and worship Christ because of the good news that your right standing with Him is only based on His death and resurrection and give him the glory because of it let's pray Lord this I just confess this um, this text is a difficult text to, to understand to, to teach and Lord I pray that um, I pray that I've done it in a way that's understandable and that um, it brought clarity to your um, teachings on the law. It brought, <clears throat> more than anything, Lord, conviction of law-keeping versus the grace of Jesus in the gospel and comfort in the gospel that we will never have to try to earn right standing with Jesus, but that we've been given it to it because of our faith in him. Lord, be with us now as we worship. Lord, if anybody needs to talk or pray, I pray that you would let them come forward now and talk to me. Come forward after the service and get prayer. Talk to the person they came with. If there's confusion on the gospel at all, Lord, give them the desire to want to talk about it freely. Don't let anyone leave here who has questions about the gospel without those questions answered. Regenerate hearts this morning, Father. 
let us see a spiritual birth. If this morning you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come and talk to me. So that you can be born again, you can be forgiven for your sin, you can know what it means to be a follower of Christ. Be with us now as we worship Jesus. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.